Well, thank you, and thank you for letting me have a part in this um, incredible conference. I don't know where all the people are who are going to participate in this, but I'm, I'm grateful that I have a chance to speak into your lives and talk to you a little bit about something that's very, very close to my heart. Um, I've been trying to figure out ways to tell people that I'm experienced without telling them how old I am, but that's pretty hard to do. So let me just tell you straight out, I have been a pastor for 51 years. I started out in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I actually planted a church there in 1969 with seven families. And then I came to uh, San Diego and became the pastor of this church, which at the time was one church in three locations. Long before there were any um, venues or anything like that, my predecessor, Dr. Tim LaHaye, had realized that he could reach more people if he had three locations. So there was a location in Solana Beach, one in downtown San Diego, and the uh, facility that we're in right now here in El Cajon. That proved to be very difficult, and after a period of time, we spun the other two off, and we became uh, the Shadow Mountain Church, changed our name so we wouldn't be confused with the other two entities. And I've been here uh, ever since 1981, soon to be... Um, 40 years of uh, teaching and preaching in one church. So I'm saying all that because I don't need any awards for that, but I'm saying that just to tell you that I'm committed to the church. I love the church. And um, I've had many opportunities all over the years to go do things that aren't the church that are involved in ministry. People say, oh, if you could go do this, you could reach way more people. You could have a much greater impact. But I, I keep telling them the only place that I can go when that question comes up is that one verse where Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. A uh, long time ago, I learned the lesson to try to stay where the blessing of God is. And uh, I know that the blessing of God is on the church. So the church is in my heart. The church is my target. The church is where I live and move and breathe. And one of the things that's challenging to me at this time is that there are those out there who are trying to redefine the church, to give it broad perspective so that just about anything you do that's religious, you can call it a church. Uh, there are all kinds of people who go into the church to try to find, believe it or not, a shelter for what they're doing on radio and television because the rules for the church are much less stringent than they are uh, for a separate 501c3. The church uh, has become an anomaly to many people. They don't know what it is. What is the church? Is this the church or isn't it? We have benevolent organizations all over the world that are doing great work. I applaud them for what they do. They're digging wells and uh, they're sending uh, doctors to the different places around the world. And I applaud it. I think it's the greatest thing. I, I approve it. I send people there. But that's not the church. It's just not. And if we lose sight of what the church is, we lose our way. Because the church is God's idea. It's God's plan. It's his purpose for reaching the world with the gospel. There is no plan B or C. There's only one plan. It's the church. And what I'd like to do is kind of go back and forth with what is the church and why are some of the things we see today not the church. I have no desire to be critical of any of them. But it's very important that we guard the definition of the church <clears throat> and that we don't call something the church that's not the church. So these few verses describe the New Testament church as it was intended to be. 
And in these verses, I want to show you six things that make the church a great place. I want to tell you that this is a great weekend for me because we have been, quote, outside of the church buildings now for 15 weeks. And as I stand here today, we're planning to have our first church service tomorrow on this campus. And I cannot tell you how excited I am about that. But in the process of that, here's another illustration of how misunderstanding can happen concerning the church. During this time, when we haven't been able to go to church as a group, I have been teaching online. And um, just this last week, we had 56,000 sites that watched it. So they tell us over 100,000 people watched me teach. Now, that's a pretty special thing. And I've actually had um, brothers in Christ who do what I do, pastors, recently this week. One of them said, you know, I'm thinking about not going back until I have to. I said, what do you mean? Well, the church is great. The church is great. Look at all this. Our offerings are up. People are sending their money in, and so many people are watching. And I just said, yeah, but that's not the church. Online services are not the church. They're services. They're important. They're the next best thing to being in church. At least you can hear a message and, and some, some worship music. But I, I just think it's important in this juncture to say online services are not the church. They don't qualify. They hardly qualify under any of the six qualifications that are given to us in the book of Acts. So the first qualification that you, you discover when you read what, what is written in this passage is that church is a place where you find Christ. Church is a place where you can get saved. Here's what it says. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them saying, be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. As a result of Peter's preaching and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 3,000 people got saved in one day, and it was Peter's preaching like he had preached before with the addition of the infilling of the Holy Spirit. Church is a place where people find Christ. If I were preaching to a congregation today, especially if it was, a, it was a mixed in terms of age, I would ask this question. I would ask you, how many of you became Christians because of your church? And you would see about half of the people in the auditorium raise their hands. They came to Christ at an invitation, which is still given in some churches, though not many anymore. Uh, Billy Graham's use of the invitation caused many people to use that as a way to invite people to Jesus Christ. I must be old-fashioned because I still give an invitation quite often in our services. They're saved through Sunday school classes. They're saved through vacation Bible school. They're saved through all of the extra parts of the church. Church ought to be a place where people get saved. There's, a, there's an old argument out there that you don't, you don't get people saved at church. You bring people to church. You train them so that they can go and reach others with the gospel. All of that is very true, but it's not a... Either or, it's a both and. You bring them to church, you preach the gospel, they hear the gospel, and they get saved. And it's life-changing. That happens in the church. That doesn't happen out in the wilderness where you're um, helping people socially or helping them physically. Can they get saved? Yes. But they get saved at the church. Church is a great place to get saved, and it's a great place uh, to follow Christ. The church was designed by the Lord God as a place for people to 
to get born and then to grow. Uh, in the verse that I just read, it says, those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to them. Those who came to Christ followed Christ in baptism. Their baptism wasn't the result of a year's probation. There was no catechism. These believers were baptized immediately. The baptisms at Cornelius' home illustrate how that happened. Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit, just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. The next time someone who isn't in a church tries to make you believe they're a church, ask them when they had their last baptism service. Baptism is a church ordinance. It's one of the two. It's to be administrated under the leadership of the elders or, or the, the leaders of the church. And the Bible teaches us that part of the church is to be baptized into the body of Christ. And baptism is a picture of what happens to us when we become Christians. Some have argued that when all those people were saved in Jerusalem that, that first time, uh, 3,000 souls were saved and they all had to be baptized. One writer that I read said the 120 disciples uh, divided these converts in, and so they went to all the pools in Jerusalem and they had all these simultaneous baptismal services. That's all true, but it was all part of the church in Jerusalem. We have always, uh, at Shadow Mountain, had a little thing about people having random baptisms. We always have people come and say, you know, my buddy got saved. Can I baptize him in my pool? Well, you can if you want to, but it's not baptism according to the Scripture. Baptism according to the Scripture takes place when the church meets and gathers. It's a coming out party for that believer. So if, you're, if you have a church, is anybody getting saved? Is anybody getting baptized? And then the scripture goes on to say the church is a great place to, to feel connected with other people. Uh, we do rallies all over the country for Turning Point. And I love them. They're well attended. They're in these big arenas and I get to preach. And That's not the church. I preach. Some people get saved. But when we say amen, they all leave and go back to their places and I never see them again. I don't know if there's any connectivity between some of them. They probably come in little groups, but there's no ultimate co connectivity in that. That's a one-time thing that happens and it's over. But I've never, ever dreamed that it was a church. You know, one of the things I've tried to do to make sure people understand this is when I, uh, when I teach on the radio, as you well know, uh, media is very expensive and our budget's enough to g give me a nightmare every time I think about it. But when I ask people to give, even at these rallies, here's what I tell them. Please do not give us your tithe. We do not want your tithe. Your tithe belongs to the church. Give your tithe to the church. And then I say, and if you're, if you're ministered to a, a local Christian radio station, they depend on your income here. If you have more than your tithe, give it to them. And then if you've given your tithe and you've helped your local radio station and you've got anything left over, we'd be happy to receive it. Well, you know what? God has blessed that. We don't have, we're not standing on the edge of collapse financially because We've made that appeal. Why do I do that? To remind everybody of the centrality of the church, and this is God's purpose, that the church be at the center of all that we do. So the church is a place to feel connected. Acts 2.41 says that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. It wasn't just the names that were added to them. 
the souls were added to them. Peter had more converts in one day than Jesus had in his entire three years of ministry on this earth. This made the total number of believers in that early church 3,120, 120 of chapter 1 and 3,000 chapter 2. We do not know what kind of role was kept in the early church, but the Bible says they were added to them. They had some idea of how many people were in their group, and in that group they were connected to one another. So the church is a place where you get saved, where you find Christ, where you follow Christ, where you feel connected with each other, and it's a place to focus on change. Here's the key element of a church that delineates a church from almost every organization that might claim to be one. At the center of every church is the declaration of the gospel, is the preaching of the word of God. And they steadfastly continued in the apostles' doctrine. James Montgomery Boyce has an interesting observation about the priority of teaching in the early church. Here's what he wrote. He said, there were a lot of things that Luke could have said about the church. As we go on, we find out it was a joyful church. It was an expanding church, a vibrant church. These are all important items. Nevertheless, the first thing Luke talks about is the teaching. He stresses that in these early days, in spite of an experience as great as Pentecost, which might have caused them to focus on their experiences, the disciples devoted themselves first to the teaching of the Word of God. It is important to observe what they were studying. They were, they were studying the apostles' doctrine. The apostles were those who had witnessed the life of Christ from the baptism to the resurrection. And they had been observers of his ministry and his death and his resurrection and his ascension. And these were the words that were being taught to the early church and continue to this day to be the core of teaching for believers everywhere. A spirit-filled church will be a Bible-studying, teaching church. Now, that might seem like to all of you who are watching this as just, you know, of course. But there, there's a movement out there that is really troubling to me. And it's, it's captured by a little statement that has been attributed to more than one person. I don't know who really said it the first time. But here's the statement. Preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Now, when I first heard that, I thought, what a great statement. But it's not a great statement. It is, it is an error in statement because there is no such thing as the gospel without words. You cannot preach the gospel without the word. The, the, the words are here, then the words are here, then they have to be here. The gospel is the preaching of the word of God. And without the preaching of the content of the gospel, no one can be saved. You cannot become a Christian without two things. You have to have the Word of God and the Spirit of God. Those two things cooperate, and new birth happens. But if there is no content, they say, well, just go help them. Go minister to them. Go to the hospital. Go serve them. And they will come back and ultimately find Christ. Not. It doesn't happen. I have a wonderful friend who lives in Boone, North Carolina. He is a medical doctor and has been my consulting doctor all of my life since I pretty much came here. He was Billy Graham's doctor and helped to keep him alive all those years, which gives me great hope. I hope he can perform the same thing on me that he did on him. 
But um, my friend is one of the founders of uh, World Medical Missions. So every year he spends uh, weeks on the mission field. He's a thoracic surgeon, a very highly regarded thoracic surgeon. He's written several books. Um, he's retired from his practice in Boone, but he spends all of his time helping doctors take short-term mission trips to the mission field. I'll never forget one day when he told me this story. He said, all of our doctors are skilled in helping people get healed. There's a lot of facial work done on the mission field because of uh, leprosy and other things that disfigure a person. And he said, they're very good and the, they come to our clinic and we help them and they go back to their home, different people. But he said, one day it dawned on me that we were doing these people a very, very bad service. I said, Dr. Furman, how could you be doing a bad service? He said, we were healing their bodies and not taking care of their souls. I said, what do you mean? He said, they would come, they would be anxious to be served, and we would bring them into the operating room and we would help them get better. We would have a prayer with them and we would send them home. He said, we've changed everything in our missions. We will not ever operate on anyone in the future until we have presented the gospel of Jesus Christ to them before the operation. Because if we send them home better, all they are is in better health on their way to hell. He says, not everybody accepts. And if they, if they choose not to accept the gospel, we serve them. But we give them this opportunity to become a Christian and to get healed spiritually before they get healed physically. I will never forget that. And I will tell you, there's an awful lot of work that's done in the name of Christ where there is no gospel, where there's just service because people believe that you can preach the gospel without words. I'm here to tell you, it is impossible to preach the gospel without words. The gospel is content concerning Jesus Christ. To preach the gospel is one of the greatest callings you could ever have. And the Bible says, without a preacher, they can't hear. And without hearing, they can't be saved. So I treasure the fact that in eternity's perspective, my calling is much better than that of a medical doctor. For the healing that comes from the gospel takes them all the way to heaven and beyond. The healing that happens here just takes care of what lasts for a few short years. So what I want you to know is that in the church, there is this growth that happens. There's the preaching that happens. If they say it's a church, if they say this is a 501c3 church, ask them when they had their last baptism and ask who's preaching the gospel every week. The church cannot be renegades, cannot be pushed into something that it is not. You can't morph it into what you want it to be. To, to be. The church is what the, the Word of God says it is. So just a couple more things. First of all, the church is a great place to find Christ. It's a place to follow Him. It's a place to feel connected. It's a place to get changed through the teaching of the Word of God. But it's also a great place to fellowship with other Christians. As I've talked to our people during the COVID-19 thing that we've been through, they miss the church. They can't miss the preaching too much because I've been preaching to them ever since they couldn't come. You know what they miss? They miss the worship and they miss the fellowship. When you're a Christian in today's culture, you're in the minority to some extent. Your hope and your encouragement and your motivation and your strength for life comes when you gather with other believers and you find out you're not alone, that you're in this 
you're in this thing together, you're swimming upstream against the culture. If you take that away, that leaves a big hole in the heart of every believer. The church is supposed to be a place where we fellowship. And Acts 2.42 in this seminal passage says, and they continued steadfastly in fellowship. The New Testament word for fellowship is the word koinonia, and it means partnership or sharing. It's a word that means to hold things in common. John Stott says that the word fellowship was born on the day of Pentecost. It's a reminder to us that the Christian life is not to be lived in isolation. The fellowship we enjoy in the church is fellowship with Jesus Christ and fellowship with his other believers. For some reason, a Christian can't go to church. I believe that God extends special grace to that person. Our radio and television ministry reaches many homebound people. We're grateful for that opportunity. But I've been really concerned about a lot of people I've heard saying, you know what, this going to church on, online is pretty cool. I get up on Sunday morning and get my pajamas on, get my coffee. We, we huddle up on the couch and turn on the worship and watch you preach. And, and we think this is great. And I've been screaming at the top of my lungs, it's great, but it's not church. Church is not isolated. Church is the gathering together of God's people. Almighty God has put a high priority on our relationships. When he wanted to reach us with the gospel, he didn't send us a message. He sent us his son, his son to tell us that the gospel is a relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ and then with each other as we grow in Christ. The book of Malachi in the Old Testament has a verse that describes the priority that God gives to the relationships of his people. Here's what it says. Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord and meditate on his name. Now let me just tell you three things that happen when you fellowship. First of all, you open your hearts to one another. You, you, uh, you talk to each other. You interact with each other. You open your heart. You become vulnerable to one another. You confess your challenges. You ask people to pray for you. You're, you become, maybe for the first time in your whole life, you become honest with other people. And you pray for them, and they pray for you. You open your heart to them. The second thing you do is you open your hands to them. If they have a need, you help them. One of the things that's been so wonderful for me to watch during the COVID is the, is the, food, the food drive that, we've, that we started here. We began to hear that there are people in El Cajon that were hungry that didn't have enough food to eat. We had no idea what we were doing, but we know how to ask questions. And so we asked a lot of questions and we found other places where they were doing it and we established our own food distribution uh, during, and we've delivered over 380,000 pounds of food to people here on this campus. As I am in here teaching today, the food distribution is going on outside of our building and I almost couldn't get in the building because of the traffic. Hundreds and hundreds of people have been helped. But all of the need isn't outside of the church. There are people in the church that don't have enough. When you become a part of the fellowship, you become aware of the, the needs that people have, and you don't just bury those needs in your heart. You open your hands and you give to them. We've had people give other families a car. We've had them bring them the food that they need. That's the spirit of fellowship. First of all, you open your heart. Then you open your hands. And the ultimate is you open your home, and you allow them to come and stay with you in your home. You are not afraid. Now, I, I grew up in an open home family. My dad was a preacher, and every time we had anybody come to speak, 
I got pushed to the couch and they got my room to sleep in. So I know what an open home is like. And I have to tell you, when I visited uh, Radius uh, early on, I found out that one of the requirements for graduation is you have to go and stay in the home of one of the local families for a period of time and interact with them. And you have to develop that yourself. You don't get assigned there. You have to open their, their door. And I thought to myself, what an incredible way to help people understand the principles of the Word of God and to develop that get-along relationship sort of thing that gives you the opportunity to share your faith. So we open our hearts, we open our hands, and then ultimately, in whatever humble way we can, we open our homes. And that's called fellowship. That's what the gospel says we do if we're in a church. Are you getting a picture of the church? The church isn't just something you put on an organization because it sounds good. The church is very wonderfully defined in the scripture as a unique organism. It's not even an organization. It's an organism. It's a living, breathing organism. And so the church is where you find Christ. It's where you follow Christ, where you feel connected and focus on change and where you fellowship with each other. And it's where you fulfill your calling. The Bible tells us when we become Christians, there are certain things we do. First of all, we come to the Lord's Supper. One of the things I've missed during this time is we haven't had communion. And because of the coronavirus restrictions, we're not going to be able to have it for a while. But communion is one of the things we're commanded to, to, to celebrate as a church. And the reason for that is we're to do it in remembrance of him. We're to remember how this whole thing happened. It's like the Lord God said, here's the core of the church. And here is an institution that I want to put in your heart so you never forget why you come together. Communion. And then they gather together in prayer. I believe more praying is going on during this time perhaps than any other time. People are praying together. They're just getting together in circles and praying, praying for one another, praying for the people who are sick, praying for the leadership of our country and our community, praying for the church that it could be reopened. In the early days, one of the callings of the believers was to pray, and you see that everywhere. They continued in prayer. They prayed daily. They prayed without ceasing. They prayed for others, and they prayed for the lost, and they celebrated their faith. One of the hard things about being a pastor is to watch what happens to people when they get saved. Most of the time, there's a period of time when they get really excited. They haven't learned Christianese yet, so they speak in their own language, and it's really refreshing. Sometimes a few words get in there that shouldn't perhaps be in a church conversation, but it's still okay because it's real. But then somebody gets them aside and teaches them how to say holy and be thou and all that, and, and they lose uh, their sense. And then what happens? You lose contact with the people they know. What's supposed to happen when a person comes to Christ in the church is you not only win them to Christ, you win their whole sphere of influence. You win their families. <clears throat> you win their, their children, their loved ones. But what happens to many people, they become Christians, and then they just close up in the church and they sit and they soak and they sour and they never go out. Well, I want you to hear what happened in the early church. <clears throat> Fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. They ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. They didn't just become a group that withdrew from society. <clears throat> the early church reverence seized everyone. The people who saw the church 
saw that it was alive and moving and different than anything they had ever seen. It is evident from this passage that many of the early believers <clears throat> were flaming evangelists. They went out with the gospel and they caused others to hear the gospel. The explosion of the gospel in Jerusalem can only be explained in that way. Someone once told me that if you want to empty your church, give them this announcement. You're going to have a two-week series, the first one on prayer and the second on witnessing, and they will stay home in droves. That's what they said. Why? There's no two things that we feel more guilty about as believers than those two things. We all know we don't pray as we should, and we don't witness as we should. And one of the reasons we don't witness as we should is because we've allowed theologians and teachers to elevate witnessing to something that it isn't. That you have to have a theological education to talk to other people about Jesus. I once heard a wonderful story about a young monk who was called on to preach the first sermon at his monastery. He was frightened and intimidated and he opened with a question. How many of you know what I am about to say? When no, no one raised their hand, he, he admitted, well, I don't either. And he dismissed the assembly and he dismissed it with the words, Dominus Vobiscum, the Lord be with you. Of course, his superiors weren't happy about that and they brought him in and chewed him out. And so he had to do it again the next week. And the next week, to everyone's surprise, he asked the same question. How many of you know what I'm about to say? And this time, the brothers decided to teach him a lesson. So everybody raised their hand. Courageously, the young monk smiled and he said, so since you already know, you don't need to hear the sermon. And he walked off the stage with Dominus Fobiscum. After a severe reprimand, he slowly ascended the stairs of the platform yet a third time. And he deliberately, astonishedly asked the question he had asked twice before, how many of you know what I'm about to say? To completely unbalance this clever amateur, half of the brothers raised a hand and half of the brothers did not. Well, said the young monk, those of you who know, tell those who don't know. Dominus Bobiscum, and he walked off the stage. Well, that's a cute little story, but it's a story with a very powerful lesson. Witnessing is those of you who know, telling those who don't know who Jesus is and what he can do in your life. When we try to make it more sophisticated than that with our charts and books, and, and all kinds of fancy little things that we do to help people come to Christ. We will win some, but we're making our work way harder than it should be. Just ask yourself the question, what has Jesus Christ done for me? And every time you get a chance, tell somebody what that is. And God will begin to use you to fulfill that part of the calling of the church. So this is the church. And I thought maybe you should know that Radius believes everything I have been teaching. I went to their website and I found perhaps the best definition of the church I have ever read in my life. And I'm going to take just a moment to read it to you before we shut this down. A church is a group of obedient Jesus followers that are salt and light in its community and that carries out its corporate functions as the body of Christ. It grows out of its own social and cultural context. So it is comprised of families and marriages and children and elderly. It has mature leadership that teaches, disciples, and exhorts. As a living organism, it brings in new believers and matures through discipleship into reproduction and multiplication. It loves and cares for its own members. 
including the poor and the elderly. It meets regularly for biblical instruction. It worships, sharing resources and prayer, taking on forms that are relevant to that culture context. It loves its neighbors by engaging them relevantly and meeting their needs. It evangelizes those around it and sends its own members to disciple the nations. These are not Western ideas. The New Testament concepts that must be built into the church are here. And at Radius, we equip you to do the long-lasting, serious work that is modeled to us in the New Testament church. Back in 1969, Don and I left our youth pastorate in New Jersey and accepted the call to Fort Wayne, Indiana to, to plant a church. I must tell you that on my list of a hundred things I always wanted to do, it wasn't on my list. I went to seminary, by the way. I went to college and I thought, when you go to college and you go to seminary, you shouldn't have to start a church. You should be able to inherit one that's big and you know that's what everybody thinks. But we met the people, the seven families that were going to start that church, and we were, we were struck by the genuineness of their heart. So in 1969, in August, we moved from New Jersey to Fort Wayne to a, a part of Fort Wayne called the Blackhawk Community, which was a high-rise, kind of upper-level group. And we began what was then and is still today called the Blackhawk Baptist Church. First Sunday I preached in that church, we had 35 people. I stayed there for 12 years. 12 of my 50 years of ministry were involved in establishing that church. When I left, the church was about 1,500 in, in size, and, and it was growing, and it was vibrant, and, and I hated to leave it because it was part of who I was. Well, here's the interesting thing I want to tell you. Last year, just a few months ago, Donna and I were invited to go back to the Blackhawk Baptist Church and celebrate their 50th anniversary. Who gets to do that? Start a church and stay around for 50 years to celebrate their 50th anniversary. And ladies and gentlemen, what I, got, what I found there is so overwhelming to me that if I ever had any doubts about the power and uniqueness of the church, they were all resolved on that weekend. First of all, I met all kinds of people who came up to me and said, Dr. Jeremiah, we remember the night you came to our home and shared the gospel with us. And then they would tell me what's happened to their children and their grandchildren and how they're serving the Lord. And generationally, the whole area was changed because of the gospel. The church is about 2,000 plus. They have a beautiful auditorium, but they've spawned five other churches since I left. And one of the churches they spawned is now bigger than the home church. When Don and I were there, after having been there for about a year and a half, we had a group of the young families come and say, we need a Christian school. Our schools are, are going in the wrong direction. We don't want to put our children in the public schools. I didn't want to start a school. I really didn't. I was having a hard, hard enough time trying to figure out what to do with the church. But after being pressured, we started a school. I remember we had just a few students the first year. I was a head basketball coach and the principal, and my, my wife taught typing, and we did all the stuff that had to be done. When I revisited that church 50 years later, just a few months ago, it's the largest Christian school in the whole Fort Wayne area. Over a thousand students, highly regarded and respected. And last year, they won the state basketball championship in Indiana, which I never dreamed that would ever happen. And they had to wait till I, lave, I leave, and then they go do that. But it was an amazing thing. Why do I tell you this story? 
when you plant a church, you don't plant something that you think is going to last for a while. You plant a church forever. We planted that church, and they've had five pastors in 50 years. It is today a vibrant testimony in the city of Fort Wayne. We stayed with it for a decade to give it a good start. And then we walked away to come and do what God wanted us to do here. But we went back to see that when you plant a church, it's the greatest thing you can ever do. You have no idea the impact it's going to have in the days ahead. And we just got a little glimpse of it in our 50-year journey with that church. I covet for all church planters an experience like that. Don't just plant it and then go do something else. Plant it and nourish it and grow it and build it and get the right people there and get lay leadership and teach evangelism explosion or whatever you need to do so the church can grow. And you will discover that you have fallen in to the greatest thing you could ever imagine. You are now in the church and you're building the church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to talk about this one thing that is so important and vital in my life and in the world in which we live, the Church of Jesus Christ. We see people doing great things outside of the church, and we laud that, but we do not laud it enough to give them our title. We are the church. We are the Church of Jesus Christ, the local assemblies of the body of Christ. And we serve under the leadership of our Savior and Lord. And we see the effect of the things that were set in order in Acts chapter 2. We constantly need to measure what we do against what we should do so that we don't lose our way. I want to pray for all the church planters, others who are watching this, that you will put within their heart a love for the church as we have learned about it today. In Jesus' name. Amen.